calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 18. Nerves. Margaret looked at the readout with disbelief. Amos! She called through the biosuit's tinny microphone. Come here and take a look at this. Amos glided over, as unaffected by fatigue as ever, and stood next to her. What have you got? I finished the analysis on samples taken from all over the body and found massive quantities of neurotransmitters, particularly in the brain. Amos leaned forward to read the screen. Excessively high levels of dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin... My God, his system was out of control. What do you think did this to him? That's not my specialty. I'll have to check into it. But from what I do know, excessive levels of neurotransmitters can cause paranoid disorders, even some psychopathic behaviors. And I'm not sure there has ever been a case documented with levels this high. The growth is controlling the victim with natural drugs. I wish we could get our hands on a live victim so we could see the insides of those damn growths. This is twice now we've had victims to examine, but both times the growths have been completely rotted out. It's almost as if the person who created these things intentionally added the rotting aspect so it'd be harder to examine the little buggers. Margaret rolled the concept around in her brain, but it didn't take hold. She was already suspicious of the growth's incredible complexity. Another theory began to take shape. Amos pointed to the screen. The growth either produces or causes to be produced excess neurotransmitters, which create reproducible results. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. There are other variances as well. There was 75 times the normal level of enkephalins in the tissue surrounding growth. Enkephalin is a natural painkiller. Amos thought for a moment. That makes sense. It's hard to tell with all the rot, but it looks like the growth causes a lot of damage to the surrounding tissue. Whoever engineered the growth doesn't want the host to feel that damage. The level of complexity is astronomical. Amos, you don't have to root for the little buggers. We're here to stop these things, remember? He smiled. It's hard not to be astounded. Come here and take a look at what I've got under the ultraviolet microscope. Margaret shuffled to the device, where Amos had been working for the last 30 minutes. Her rackle suit zip-zipped with each step, as if she wore children's footed pajamas. She peered into the microscope. The sample looked like a normal nerve cell. Amos had done a perfect job of isolating and preparing the tissue. Finger-like dendrites, stained and glowing electric blue under the ultraviolet light, reached out and over the thicker axons. It was the same connection that provides signal communication for every animal on the planet. It's an isolated cluster of nerve cells. Where is this from? 
I found it near the eighth cranial nerve. The rod is working its way through there, but I was able to find a few relatively clean areas. Inside the awkward biosuit, Margaret frowned. The eighth cranial nerve, or the vestibulocochlear nerve, was where the signals from the ear entered the brain. Mm, it's heavily damaged, shows signs of decomposition, but still obviously nerve tissue. Amos remained quiet. Margaret looked up from the microscope. Amos leaned forward. You're sure? Margaret wasn't in the mood for games, but she took another look anyway. She could see nothing unusual. Amos, if you've got a point to make, please make it. The cells don't belong to Martin Brubaker. Margaret stared blankly, not understanding the statement. Not Brubaker's? Why are you looking at other samples? If they're not Brubaker's nerve cells, then who's... Her voice trailed off as the significance hit home. Amos, are you telling me that these belong to the growth? I performed protein sequencing on the blackthorn and the vein siphon. The results turned up some unknown proteins. Definitely not human. So I took some samples from around the body and ran the same sequence. I found high concentrations in the brain. That's how I discovered the cluster on the cranial nerve. I found the proteins in other places, but no more nerves, only remnants of that particular rot. There were high concentrations in the cerebral cortex, the thalamus, the amygdala, caudate nucleus, hypothalamus, and septum. Margaret felt overwhelmed. Much of the brain's higher functions remained a mystery, even in this day of rapidly ascending scientific knowledge. The sections of Brubaker's brain infected with the rot composed part of the limbic system, which was thought to control memory storage and emotional response, among other functions. What the hell was the growth doing in Brubaker's brain? It already had him controlled with a neurotransmitter overdose, didn't it? Amos continued. What you're looking at here is the only sample I found that wasn't completely decomposed. I've never seen proteins like this, so I assume they're synthetic, man-made. If they're natural, they're nothing I've ever encountered. I've searched all the academic and biotech databases and found nothing similar. That means that the proteins are synthetic. Someone is keeping their research well-guarded, which doesn't surprise me, considering the vastly advanced technology we're dealing with. She was awed. It was unthinkable that the organism's creator had engineered a new parasite that could grow from a very small embryo, possibly even a single cell, and latch onto a human host. It was even more unthinkable that this creature produced neurotransmitters like some kind of factory dumping them into the bloodstream. But it was numbing, yes, numbing, to comprehend the genius that had bioengineered artificial nerves so accurately that they could interact with human nerves. I follow the vein siphon. That makes sense. But the siphon is just a physical attachment to draw nutrients. What good does it do to the parasite to grow mimic nerves? You got me. But one must draw the logical conclusion that the growths tapped into the nervous system, just as they tapped into the circulatory system. But why? She spoke more to herself than to Amos. The neurotransmitter overdose produces somewhat predictable, reproducible results. If the goal is to make people crazy, then why would they go through the trouble of tapping into the nervous system? And what's the purpose for doing so? Amos shrugged. He rolled his shoulders and twisted at the waist, trying to loosen up. He walked around the table, doing mini-laps, trying to shake off the fatigue. Margaret shuffled to her station, her mind spinning with possibilities and a new level of fearful respect for the mystery organism. It had seemed so obvious, unbelievable and awe-inspiring, but still obvious, that this was an organism bioengineered to make people violent and unpredictable. Now, however, she wasn't so sure. There was something else to the mystery, something that a theory of high-tech terrorists didn't explain. Hey, Margaret, bring me the camera. She looked back. Amos stood next to Brubaker's hip. 
All parts of him were being consumed by the black rot, but some spots weren't quite as advanced. The hip was one such spot. She grabbed the camera from the prep table and handed it to Amos. He pointed to the hip, to the little lesion they'd seen earlier. Margaret, look at this. He knelt down and took a picture. I see it. You already showed it to me. Yeah, but do you see anything different? Amos, no more drama, please. If you got something to say, say it. He said nothing. Instead, he stood, fiddled with the camera, then stood shoulder to shoulder with her so they could both see the camera's small screen. The screen showed a close-up of the lesion, a tiny blue fiber sticking out of it. So? We've got shit to do before his body turns to mush. That's the picture we took when we first saw it, he said, then hit the advance button on the camera. The picture changed. And that is the picture I took just now. Margaret stared. The two pictures looked exactly the same, except for one thing. The second picture showed not one fiber, but three. A small red one, a small blue one, and the original blue one, which was three times as long as it had been before. Even though Martin Brubaker was dead, the fibers were still growing. But I don't like needles, Missy said, her voice small and quiet. Mommy, make them stop. This won't take long, honey. You just be still. Mom gently stroked her hair. That felt nice, but the rest of it didn't. She was face down on a table covered with crinkly paper in Dr. Baker's clinic. Her right arm straight out and flat, resting on a little padded table covered with more crinkly paper. Dr. Baker she'd known her whole life. He was all nice and smiley. He always had a sucker for her and her brother, whether she was brave or whether she cried. Tommy never cried. Today it wasn't just Dr. Baker. There was a new doctor, Dr. Cheng. He was not smiley. He always looked mad, with that space between his eyes and nose wrinkled up like Mommy did when Tommy broke something. Dr. Cheng sat in a chair right in front of her thumb. Her table was kind of high up, and she could have looked him in the eye had he ever looked at her. Dr. Baker stood next to Dr. Cheng's left. Missy's pointer finger pointed right at him. Normally, Nurse Williams worked with Dr. Baker, but not today. Swab the area, Dr. Cheng said. Dr. Baker had a piece of cotton pinched in some metal thing that looked like long scissors. He dipped it in a brown liquid. This will be a little cold, Missy, Dr. Baker said. He put the wet cotton on her wrist, right on the blue thread. She flinched. It was cold. It also made the spot itch and hurt more. She didn't want to be here. Mommy! Be still, Missy, Mommy said in a stern voice. Mommy smiled, but it was a fake smile, the kind she used when Daddy came over to take Missy and Tommy away for the weekend. You doing okay, Missy? Dr. Baker asked. His smile was real. It was always real. It's just a little cold. You're tougher than that, right? Tough like your brother? Missy sniffled once, then nodded her cheek rubbing against the crinkly paper. Dr. Baker was right. Tommy wouldn't cry like a little baby just because of some cold, brown, yucky stuff. Can we move this thing along? Dr. Ching said. Dr. Baker glared down at Dr. Ching, his smile vanishing for a few seconds. Dr. Ching did not look up. Dr. Baker turned back to Missy, and his smile returned, his eyes wrinkling up on the outsides like they always did. Okay, honey, Dr. Baker said. Now comes big girl time. This is a little needle that's called an anesthetic. Can you say that word? Anesthetic. Good. What this does is it makes your itchy owie spot numb, so Dr. Chang can remove that weird blue thingy. When he does, 
It won't hurt, and you won't feel a thing. Now, I want you to know that I had to give Tommy an anesthetic three months ago, and he didn't cry. Can you be as tough as Tommy? Missy couldn't. No one in the world was as tough as Tommy. But she'd try. If she did cry, and Tommy found out, he'd tease her nonstop. So she nodded. You might want to go ahead and close your eyes, Missy, Dr. Baker said. It looks scary, but it's just a pinch. Missy shut her eyes as tight as she could. It seemed like forever before she felt Dr. Baker's gentle hand touch her wrist. Then came the sting. She hissed in a sharp intake of breath, but she didn't move a muscle. Tommy wasn't the only one that could be tough. It wasn't as bad as a hornet sting, and she knew it was coming. Then, as soon as it hit, it was gone. All set, honey, Dr. Baker said. She let out a long breath that blew a few strands of stray blonde hair away from her face. Mommy laughed, and Missy felt her soft hands stroke her hair. Dr. Chang leaned in. He had some kind of metal pencil. It took Missy a second to realize it was a funny-looking knife, and he was going to use it to cut her wrist. Her heart pounded in her chest. She wanted to scream, but Dr. Baker said it wouldn't hurt, and Mommy was right there. Mommy wouldn't let anything happen to her. So where's the other patient? Dr. Ching said as he leaned in closer to her wrist. We haven't reached Gwyn yet. Gwyn's fibers look like this? Correct. Very similar. Dr. Chen looked up at Dr. Baker. Has Gwyn left for a holiday break? Gone home for Christmas and my trip out here was a waste of time? He's staying on campus for the break, Dr. Baker said. Home for him is one heck of a plane ride. Dr. Chang bent his head back down, then made a small movement with the knife. Missy saw a drop of blood on her wrist, but she didn't feel a thing. He made another motion, another drop of blood. Dr. Baker dabbed at the cut with a white piece of cloth. Dr. Baker, Dr. Ching said. I've come a long way for this, and the CDC doesn't have time to waste. Could you please have your staff try to reach Mr. Gwyn? Dr. Cheng said please like he should, but it didn't sound nice like it should. Sounded like when Mommy told Tommy to please pick up his room. Which really meant, pick up your room or you are in big trouble, mister. Of course, doctor, Dr. Baker said. Dr. Chang made one more little motion, then lifted away a little bloody chunk of something. He put it in a white container with a funny, curly red symbol on it. Never mind, Dr. Chang said. Please finish up here and I'll go call him myself. Dr. Chang took off his gloves with a snap and dropped them into one of those step-on waste baskets. He took the white container and left the room. Dr. Baker stared at the door for a few seconds, then turned and smiled. It was a forced smile this time. See, Missy, that wasn't so bad, was it? And I didn't cry. No, you didn't. I think you get two suckers this time. No, you didn't. I think you get two suckers this time. Is everything okay, doctor? Mommy said. Should be fine, Dr. Baker said as he put a band-aid on Missy's arm. We didn't find anything else on her body. Just keep an eye on her to see if the fiber grows back or she gets any others. Call me if Missy reports any constant itching, okay? But that man was from the CDC, Mommy said. Isn't that serious? He's on a task force, Dr. Baker said. They've seen fibers like this in a few other places. I just had two cases very close to each other, so I called him to let him know. Dr. Chang came out himself to see. So, Missy, you get dressed and we'll get you that sucker, okay? Missy wiped her nose with the back of her hand and nodded. You know, Missy, Dr. Baker said, you did really well. Someday, you might even be tougher than your brother.
Missy smiled. That was impossible, she knew, but at least she hadn't acted like a little baby. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Chapter 19. Hump Day By noon, the damnable thing started itching again, and Perry had to wonder if he should see a doctor. But it was just a little rash for crying out loud. What kind of wuss goes to see a doctor for a little rash? If you don't have self-discipline, what do you have? He'd always been a very healthy person. He hadn't vomited from a non-alcohol-related incident since the sixth grade. While others succumbed to the flu, Perry would suffer only a runny nose and a slightly queasy stomach. While others called in sick at the drop of a hat, Perry hadn't missed a day of work in three years. He'd inherited his resilience, as he had his size, from his father. Perry had been 25 when Captain Cancer finally claimed Jacob Dossie, the toughest son of a bitch this side of Brian Urlacher. Prior to that last trip to the hospital, from which Jacob Dossie never returned, he had missed only one day of work his entire life. That day came when Perry broke his father's jaw. Barry had returned home from late-season football practice to find his father beating his mother. Snow had been falling on and off for a week, enough to cover the sparse grass with patchy white, but not enough to accumulate on the dirt road that led up to the house. The brown road glistened with cold wetness. His father had thrown his mother off the front porch, into a slushy puddle, and was in the process of whipping her with his belt. The scene was nothing new, and to this day, Perry had no idea why he snapped, why, for the first time in his life, he fought against his father's incessant rage. Gonna show you who's in charge, woman, Jacob Dossie said as he brought the belt down with a crack. Give you women an inch and you take a mile. Who the hell do you think you are? Even though his father had spent all his life in northern Michigan, he had the faintest trace of a drawl. It colored his words, making hell sound like hail. At the time, Perry was a high school sophomore, six foot two, two hundred pounds, and growing like a weed. He was no match for his father's six foot five, two hundred and sixty five pounds of solid muscle. But Perry rushed him anyway, hit his father with a flying tackle that carried them both into the tattered front porch. Rotten lattice shattered around them. Perry got up first, screaming, snarling, and hit his father with a heavy left hook. That blow broke his father's jaw but Perry only found that out later. Jacob Dossie tossed his son away like so much rubbish. Perry jumped up to press the attack. His father grabbed a shovel and proceeded to give Perry the worst beating he'd ever suffered. Perry fought like he'd never fought before, because he was sure he was going to die that day. He landed two more shots on his father's jaw, but Jacob Dossie barely flinched as he brought the flat of the shovel down again and again. The next day, the pain was too much even for the mighty Jacob Dossie. He went to the hospital, where the doctors wired his mouth shut. When his father returned home, he called his son to the kitchen table. Black and blue, 
cut in a dozen places. Perry could hardly walk after the shovel beating. But he sat at the table as his father scrawled out childish writing on a piece of paper. Jacob Dossie was only semi-literate, but Perry could make out the message. Can't talk, broke jaw, said the scribbled writing. You fought like a man. Proud of you. In a shit world, you gotta learn to survive. Someday you understand. Thank me. What had been fucked up, like really fucked up, beyond belief, wasn't the beating itself. It was the look in his father's eyes. The look of sorrow, of love, and the look of pride. The look that said, this hurt me more than it hurt you, and not because of the broken jaw. His dad saw the shovel beating in the same light a sane father might see a spanking, something unsavory that had to be done as a parenting responsibility. Jacob Dossie didn't think he'd done anything wrong. In fact, he thought he'd done the right thing, the responsible thing. And although he hated hurting his only begotten son, he'd do what had to be done to be a good father. Yeah, thanks, Dad, Perry thought. Thanks a bunch. You're the best. But as much as he hated the man, Perry couldn't deny that his father had made him who he was. Jacob Dossie had set out to make his son tough, and he had succeeded. Perry's toughness helped him excel on the football field, which earned him a scholarship and a college degree. As crazy as Jacob Dossie was, he'd also instilled a diehard work ethic that Perry very much considered a key part of his personality. He liked working hard. He liked being the one people relied on to get the job done. And rash or no rash, Perry was at work and doing his job. But being at work and being effective were two different things. He just couldn't concentrate. He continuously pursued the same avenues, the same possible solutions over and over again in his mind. His brain felt fuzzy, as if it couldn't grip the task at hand. Perry, can I spare you for a moment? He turned to see Sandy standing just inside his cube. She didn't look happy. Sure thing. I just got a call from Samir at Pullman. Their network has been dropping out for three days now. I'm working on it. I thought I had it fixed yesterday. I'm sorry it's taking so long. I know you're working on it, but I'm not sure you're paying attention. According to Samir, you had him reboot the network routers yesterday. Twice. And even though it didn't work either time, you had him do it again this morning? Perry's brain searched for an answer, but found none. They're losing money, Perry. Sandy sounded more than a little angry. I don't mind if my people can't solve a problem, but I don't want you bullshitting your way through something if you don't know how to solve it. Perry felt his own anger rise. He was working as hard as he could, damn it. He was the best one in the department. Maybe there were problems that just couldn't be solved. So can you tell me what's wrong with their system? Perry noticed for the first time that her eyes grew wide and her nostrils flared when she was angry. The look seemed childish, petulant, like some spoiled little girl who thinks people should jump at her orders. I don't know, Perry said. Her eyes widened further, and her hands went to her hips. Perry felt another stab of anger at her haughty posture. How the hell can you not know? You've been on this for three days. You haven't known for three days, and you haven't asked for help? I said I'm working on it! Even to himself, his voice sounded strange, full of anger and impatience. Sandy's eyes flashed with trepidation as she looked down. Her gaze returned to his face, the petulant look gone, replaced by a questioning, slightly fearful expression. Perry looked down himself to see what she'd stared at. His hands were balled into fists, squeezed so tight 
The knuckles glowed white against his reddish skin. He realized his whole body was coiled with aggressive tension, the same posture he used to have before the snap of the ball, or before a fight. The office suddenly seemed very quiet. He pictured how frightening the scene must be to her, his big angry body hovering predatorily over her smallish, weak frame. He must have looked like a rabid bear about to pounce on a wounded fawn. He willed his hands to open. His face flushed with embarrassment and shame. He'd made Sandy afraid of him, made her afraid that he'd lash out and hit her. Just like the last job, his conscience teased. Just like the last boss. I'm sorry, Perry said. The fear left Sandy's eyes, replaced by concern, but despite the change, she backed another step out of the cube. You seem to be under some stress lately. Why don't you take the rest of the day off and relax? Perry blanched at the thought of leaving work early. I'm okay, really. I can fix the problem in Pullman. I don't care about that. I'll get someone else to fix it. Go home. Now. She turned and walked away. Perry stared at the ground, feeling like a failure, feeling he'd betrayed her loyalty. He'd been moments away from hitting the one person who'd given him a chance, who'd let him straighten out his life. She'd done everything for him by giving him that chance. This was how he thanked her. In unison, the seven itches flared all over his body, adding to his frustration. Like a huge child, he packed his duct tape briefcase and sloughed into his coat. His I am alert dinged. From Sticky Fingers Whitey. Hey man, you okay? Can I help? Perry stared at the message for a second. He didn't deserve help. He didn't deserve sympathy. Without sitting down, he typed in a reply. From Bleed Maze in Blue. Don't worry about me. I'm tip top. From Sticky Fingers Whitey. Like hell you are. Just be cool. Go home. I'll patch this up for you. From Bleed Maze in Blue. No, stay out of it. From Sticky Fingers Whitey. Fine. I promise I won't say a word to Sandy. Of course, I also lie a lot. I also promise I won't fix Pullman for you. Go watch your Pope porn. I've got this. No bow to doubt it. Bill had his back. Somehow that made Perry feel even worse. Even if he insisted Bill leave it alone, his friend would just do the work anyway. He walked out of the office, feeling the eyes of everyone on his back. Red-faced and frustrated, Perry walked to his car and headed home. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing.
become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.